to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Just a, a quick note um, on behalf of Andrea and I um, before I start, but just a, a huge thank you um, to everyone who's sort of brought us mails and dropped cards around whatever it might have been over the past sort of month as we've welcomed Isla into our family. Um, we haven't cooked a single dinner since she was born. Uh, thanks to this church family, it makes such a big difference. It's also such a great witness. It's one of those things when we're talking to like parents at the school gate, they just can't believe that. Um, so just thank you. It's a joy to bring Isla into our family, but it's also a joy to bring her into this church family. Um, that does come with a disclaimer that I am very sleep deprived right now. Um, so if I start talking about King Donald and the Queen of Sheba, um, you'll, know, you'll know what I mean. Just roll with it. It'll be fine. Um, but yes, as you can see, I think we've got the title slide coming up. We're on, on week three of just a little short four-week series on, on the life of David. Um, week one, we looked at David the Forgotten. Uh, then we looked at David the Faithful last week. And so today we're looking at David the Flawed. Um, Adam texted me when I was on paternity leave and said, hey, could you, could you, would you mind doing the one on the 4th of February? And I said, yeah, that's fine. Is that the one on, like, Flawed? And he's like, yeah, you'll be great at it. Um, such is the, the relationship we have. Um, so just to jog your memory, or if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, this is a quick way of catching up to speed. So I want you to take your hand. Don't put it like too low, just, just above the ground there. So this is David, son of Jesse, the youngest of eight brothers, right, kind of born in obscurity. And then begin to bring your hand up. David is shown to be this faithful, um, just someone who trusts God, believes God. He fights Goliath, just depending on the Lord to be his strength. He is faithful in the wilderness. David is just on this journey to the top of what it means to live a blessed life. Now do this, just go to vertically straight down with a sharp angle at the top. That's what we're looking at today. Um, David, at the, at the end of, of 2 Samuel chapter 10, is at the height of his success. He's the king in Jerusalem. He is a righteous, wise leader. He's not perfect. The Bible doesn't hide some of his flaws, but he, so far, based on everything else we've seen, is kind of this bright hope of leadership that Israel has needed. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and things take quite a stark turn. Um, so today we're going to look at one of the most famous stories, not just in the Bible, but one of the most famous stories in the world. It has resonated, captured imaginations for thousands of years. And um, as I read this, um, we're going to do two passages today. So I'm going to look at this first one and then look, have some reflections on that, and then another passage and have some reflections on that. I'm having to be selective. Um, all of, of chapters 11 and 12 are, are brilliant and, and worth reading, but I'm, I'm having to just pick out some parts. So as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 17, let's just take 10 seconds to just still ourselves and follow along on the screen or pull it up on your phone, or if you'd like to just close your eyes and absorb yourself in the story, all are fine. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. 
she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the army of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. It's a pretty sobering story, isn't it? And we're not prepared for it. As I said, like David's at the height of his success just before this. So far, he's been painted as someone who is a loyal friend, a courageous leader, a wise king, someone who is God-fearing. Clearly, as someone who you know, wrote so many of the Psalms, he had this inner life of belief and trust and dependency on God that led to this outward life of justice and love and wisdom. David is the bright hope of leadership that uh, Israel has needed. And then, what begins as a lustful whim quickly kind of spirals into this out of control sex and murder crime complete with lying and coveting and ignoring God it's like half the ten commandments in one go and the story is shocking enough to just read in English as we have just done but there's a few little things hidden in the text that I want to just draw your attention to that really I think compound the effect of this story and how stark it really is notice in verse one there's a juxtaposition that's clear in the original language of the army's activity with David's inactivity. It's painting this picture that he is, he is being idle for some reason that doesn't say why. Bathsheba, when she is introduced to us, is, is told to David to be the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah. Now, why is that important? Well, firstly, women weren't often introduced in such a manner to say who her father was and who her husband was. And so it's like the messenger is trying to remind or prompt David of something. And it's like, David, you know these men. He's humanizing Bathsheba. She is someone's daughter, someone that you know, and she is someone's wife, someone that you know. And in fact, Uriah was one of David's mighty men and so someone that David owed a great deal to. The fact that um, her house was close enough to the palace is indicative that he was the, the same Uriah that was one of the mighty men because he would have been uh, a senior soldier and lived close to the palace. 
Uh, and also, a little side note, um, often this, this story, when it's portrayed, and I think of growing up and hearing this story, you know, you sort of see cartoon pictures of like Old Testament stories, and it always depicts Bathsheba as being on the roof, and there's almost this insinuation that she was tempting David, and I don't think that's evidenced in the text at all. In fact, she was probably inside her house, and he saw her through a window. Another interesting little thing, if you happen to be at the first service, which I think a few of you were, you're not allowed to answer this question. Um, there's a particular verb that gets a, a very heavy feature in this passage. Does anyone notice what it was? It happens about 11 times. It's sent. And so there's a great deal of sending that happens um, if, you, if you read it. David, is, it's almost like it's communicating his position as being above others and he's slightly distanced from the kind of personal ramifications of some of his decisions. He sends the army, he sends for Bathsheba, he sends for Uriah to come to, you know, there's, it happens, if you go through it again, you'll notice it happens quite a few times. One scholar described that as the theme of the passage. And then notice um, how the story of the actual act between David and Bathsheba is told to us. There's no conversation. There's no affection. It's, it's relayed just almost entirely in verbs. And again, in Hebrew, the terseness of this is much more evident. But it literally goes like he sent, he took, he lay, she returned, she conceived. It's a very dispassionate recounting of events, almost communicating that to David, that's what it was. It was just this disposable interaction. Another, uh, I, th I think, telling uh, fact from the original language is that when David talks to Uriah, he inquires as to the well-being of Joab, of the army, and of the war. A way of saying that, that, that verse would be, you know, how is it going with those three things? And the word there in Hebrew is a word that you'll probably know. It's shalom, which means wholeness. It means, you know, flourishing, well-being. Shalom is a desirable thing. And so as David is uh, underneath actively destroying shalom, he has this front of shalom, 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 right? So there's a, there's a kind of double-edged thing going on in David's speech here. Uriah the Hittite, why are we told that he is a Hittite? Why is that important? And we're told that multiple times. Well, a Hittite was someone who was a convert to Judaism, so he would not have been brought up knowing Yahweh, knowing the Torah in the way that David um, would have done. And so the great irony built into our text, which again <clears throat> is easy for us to miss, is what it's showing very clearly is that this person is acting more righteously, more in accordance with Yahweh than the anointed king of Israel. Uriah is shown multiple times to be a man of integrity. He refuses to compromise on his commitments as a soldier and uh, as, as a servant of, of David's. <clears throat> so there's great irony. And in fact, David gets him drunk, and Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober. Like, that is the, 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 the level to the, that it's going to here. And then, you know, this isn't, there's nothing in the Hebrew that I'm telling you here, but I just think, like, dwell for a second on the fact that David wrote that letter of basically Uriah's murder, gave it to him to carry himself. I mean, that, this is, like, shocking, shocking levels of, of misdeed here. And so this story is in every way designed to shock us and to give us pause for thought. And um, I'm wary of kind of, you know, reading a biblical text and going, therefore, here's some little rules to follow and we'll be fine, which does happen a lot. But I think there's a couple of observations that, I, that we can make about this particular story that I think hold, um, hold truth and hold something in them for us. 
the first thing that I think is clear is that if this kind of thing can happen to King David, then we are all susceptible to it. You're not ontologically different than King David. And, you know, we're very quick to turn people into the bad guy. We read a story like this and suddenly it's easy to say, oh, he's, he's the worst, isn't he? I don't think David was any worse than you or I. He is a man after God's own heart. He is someone who clearly has been uh, faithful to God in many, many trials. In fact, after he died, we read a verse in 1 Kings uh, 15. Uh, looking back at David, it says, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So this stain stays with him, but David is still a, a good man, all things told. And so don't be too quick to write him off as some outlier here. We are all susceptible to evil deeds. The seeds of what David did lie in the heart of each of us. And so this story should serve as a mirror for us to look into and to ponder our own reflection in. This is the David, remember, who wrote things like, uh, I delight to do your will, O Lord, your laws written in my heart. This is one of hundreds of lines we could pull from Psalms that show him to be a man of just profound self-awareness and trust in God and humility and all desirable traits. He's, he's the man who went into battle against Goliath, trusting God to, to be with him in, in what must have been an incredibly terrifying exchange. And so the reminder here is that even members of God's family, even King David himself, are susceptible to evil deeds. And so we have to be very careful never to sort of put it out there. Like, I, I could never do that, like distancing ourselves from this stuff, because that in itself is the first step on the road to making these kind of mistakes. We have to soberly recognize that we're all susceptible to sin. The second thing that I think is interesting to, to ponder on this text is the question, what if David had made a different decision on that rooftop? He was confronted with a, what we could call a small battle. He saw an attractive woman. Uh, there's nothing sinful about seeing someone. It's, you know, he walked out and, and saw her. But it's what he did next that caused him all kinds of misery and led to all kinds of much uh, more severe consequences. And so I wonder if we need to ask ourselves, how do I win the small battles that we're all going to be faced with? Um, David's story, it's worth noting, is pivotal at this point. He, he is forgiven. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But his life changes after this whole affair, and he reaps the consequences of his decisions for the rest of his life. What would have happened if he had made a different decision and he had fought and won that little battle on the rooftop before it got out of hand? So you can choose the inputs that you allow in your life, but you can't control the outcomes. And so David could have controlled whether or not he acted and sent and inquired after Bathsheba. But once things had happened and she was pregnant, suddenly the whole thing spirals and David is no longer in control. You can choose some of the inputs uh, that you allow into your life, but you cannot control the outcomes. The other obvious learning here is that if you're fortunate enough to have that kind of rooftop, you shouldn't linger up there. Um, the next thing I think that we can um, draw from the text, and it's, it's quite clear, and, and actually this is affirmed by other parts of Scripture, is that sin has a way of growing exponentially. And in fact, something about concealing it and hiding it makes it grow even quicker. And so this glance 
turns into an inquiry, and that turns into illegitimate sex with Bathsheba, which of course then turns into lies, murder. It just it very quickly spirals. And this is a story we see repeated throughout scripture. We think of Genesis 3 to 11, once the fall of man has occurred, it's this kind of spiraling, exponential compounding, just misery after tragedy. Um, it makes me think as well of, of the warning that kind of is built in at the, the start of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And that communicates there's this journey that you can go on. You're, you're walking along. And then if you get interested, you stop and now you're standing, listening. And before long, you're sitting down, partaking fully. There's, there's a journey that you can go on here with sin that is, uh, is clearly evidenced in a story like David's. And so if you look at your life, the, the, the seed that I talked about that, that lies in all of our hearts, if you look at your life, where do you see a seed that you have allowed to grow a little larger than you perhaps should have? I, I, I guarantee we all have at least a few of them. Do you see a seed that might, might seem small, might seem innocuous right now, but is it self-pity? Is it resentment or envy of some kind, a seed of pride that you have allowed to grow, right? And a seed can grow into something very strong and very large indeed. And in turn, from that tree, other seeds will fall and more trees will come. And before long, you have a rainforest on your hands. It's really important that we learn to recognize the seeds that lie in our hearts and we work out how to uproot them. Now that might all sound very neat, and as I said, I'm I'm kind of wary of just drawing little, you know, rules and observations out of a text. I think those three are are, are fairly objective and helpful, but the reality is, sin is a raging fire, and our hearts, to make matters worse, can be incredibly deceptive. Right? We can be acting in all kinds of ways and justifying it in all kinds of other ways between our hearts and our heads, and so I think. Even more than um, those kind of observations, I want to encourage you to seek God for a sign. For 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 it, for you know, let him, let him show you where it is that you can kind of begin to have a, like an early warning system for this stuff. It'll look different for everyone. I've realized recently that for me, a warning sign that I might be beginning to walk down the wrong road is when the inner dialogue that I have with God on a daily basis, whenever that goes quiet, that now is a warning sign to me that I'm beginning to walk down the wrong path. So on my better days, and I say that regardless of circumstances, I'm not talking about what's happening in my day, but in terms of how I'm walking with God, my best days involve a couple of minutes at the start of the day where I just posture myself in openness towards God. And it might be quick, and it usually is quick because I have three young children and two minutes that are uninterrupted are truly a miracle. Um, but just a quick way of posturing myself for the day. And what happens then is I find when I'm driving my daughter to school on a Monday morning, I want to pray with her. She asks, she's five, and I, she's like, why do we do this, Dad? Um, I say, well, you're gonna be prayed for anyway, whether you like it or not. Um, um, if she really doesn't let me, I just do it after I drop her off, it's fine. And then I find when I've dropped her off, I'm driving to the, our office in, in Woking and I've got 20 minutes in the car. And so the things that are coming into my mind, I begin to lift them to God. Do you, do you understand what I mean? You sort of, you have a natural inner dialogue and you're not focused on God and lost in wonder, love and praise 24 hours a day because you're busy, you've got meetings, but you're just, your default posture turns to him and you lift things to him. So for me, that is a good 
day, and that's what I try to make most days. But sometimes halfway through the day, or sometimes first thing in the morning, particularly with sleep deprivation, I don't put those things in place, and I find that things that I should just be lifting to God in prayer, or things that I should be letting go of, I start to stew on them. I start to ruminate on them, and I start to entertain thoughts that I shouldn't entertain and that then leads to words that I say to people that I should you see it starts to spiral and so for me I start to have this warning system now it's like if I'm not in that place where I have this dialogue ongoing with God that's a warning sign and so what is it for you it might be that but it may be something very different ask the Lord learn what that is for you build an early warning system and we're not given um, this amount of detail in the text but I would be willing to bet that um that little clue in verse one, uh, David's inactivity compared to his army's activity is sort of indicative of a, a season in David's life where he had maybe neglected his first love. Uh, he was king, he was successful, he was at the height of his success. He probably didn't maybe need to depend on the Lord in ways that he had previously done in the wilderness or against Goliath, for example. And so I wonder if there's a little clue in there that David was experiencing a certain anemia of soul Perhaps he was going through a season where he had just kind of got out of the habit of, of talking to God on a daily basis. I, I bet he was giving permission in his mind for things long before he then committed sinful acts with his body. And so we have to be sensitive to these things and become aware of them. And I think this is harder the longer that you have been a Christian. I think you can, you can grow kind of hardened towards some of these things. Um, it, it makes me think of um, a man that I met about 12 years ago. Um, before I had three children and um, sort of, you know, I had to worry about things like fixing dishwashers and paying insurance and stuff. I was in lots of bands. I was a guitar player. I am a guitar player. I shouldn't say that past tense. I am, I am a guitar, I am a guitar player. Um, but so I used to travel, used to, to, to play with lots of different musicians. And one of the bands that I was in at one point, we, we uh, opened a conversation with this man in Florida and he was the main sort of Christian events promoter in the sort of tri-state area, which I, th I think is Alabama and Georgia that are above Florida. Someone can tell me later if I'm wrong. So we went to meet this man, um, flew over to Florida. We had some concerts anyway. And he took us to Universal Studios for the day to sort of have a, a day of getting to know each other. You're like, wow, that's amazing. I hate roller coasters. It's the worst possible day off you could give me. Give me a book and the hotel room. I'll be fine. Um, but we did go to Bubba Gump's for lunch, so that did soften the blow a little bit. Um, side story, um, I'd never been on a roller coaster before. It's just not really how I grew up. We, we sort of went for sophisticated, sort of relaxing family holidays, even when I was young. Probably explains why I'm such a, a sort of nerd now. Um, First roller coaster I ever went on was the Hulk. Any, there's a few chuckles. If you know, you know. It was the fast, I don't know if it still is, certainly then it's the fastest roller coaster in North America, ergo probably the world. Um, couldn't fill my arms for three days. It was terrifying. Screamed the entire way. Not, not, a, not a great moment for me. Anyway, sorry, before I get sidetracked. So we're, we're talking to this man, we're, we're, we're hanging out at Universal and just having this day of getting to know one another. Do we want to work together? And um, so we're sort of swapping stories. And um, at one point, one of us asks him, hey, so like, how, how did you come to faith? Like, t tell us a bit of your story. And uh, he starts telling a little bit about his childhood. And then he gets this moment where he's like, you know, the turning point for me was when I was, I think, he, you know, 16, 17, something like that. And, and tears started to well in his eyes. And he told us this story of how he had uh, drank a little bit too much one night, taken, I think it was his dad's car, and gone for a sort of joyride. And don't worry, it doesn't get any more dramatic than that. He crashed into like a fence 
And that was kind of the end of it. And so we're all like, why is he crying? Like some of the guys in the band, we were all Northern Irish, let's just say, may have ended up in paramilitary organizations if they hadn't met Jesus. So sort of being a little drunk and crashing a car into a fence really wasn't that big of a deal. But I was struck, and I still am struck, and I think about it sometimes, that this, he was so sensitive decades later to what I sort of think, like, why, why is this a big deal? But I, I, there was a sensitivity in his heart towards what he, he perceived he'd done wrong and what had grieved the heart of God uh, and, and his parents. And, and I just thought that was a beautiful sensitivity to still have decades into his walk of faith. And I pray that I have a heart that's like that. I think that's a helpful reminder for us to stay sensitive to the things that, um, that, that are on God's heart. Are you ready for part two? Okay. So once we have recognized that we are susceptible and we're, we're sober-minded about the reality of sin, and, and of course we could spend a whole session talking about the evil in the world that's much wider today. I'm, I'm talking about our individual hearts. Once we've recognized our common bond with David in this matter, we are ready for the, uh, the surprising twist that comes next. So um, it's going to come up on the screen or feel free to pull up uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and uh, verses 1 to just the start of verse 7. <clears throat> so this is after all of this stuff has happened and David has, has committed the worst atrocities in his life. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his, one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. This is a culture where hospitality to strangers was a very important matter. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that's a very serious uh, thing to say, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Very powerful story. Notice right off the top of chapter 12, who's doing the sending now. God sends Nathan to David. And we don't have what we might expect after what the, the sort of severity of what David's done, which we have pondered. You might expect God to send someone to like shout the walls down, right? And just like really, you know, tell David what, what he's done and kind of this dramatic encounter. But that's not what we get. What we get is a parable. We get this sort of story, and if you've been around the last couple summers at Emmaus, we've studied quite a few of Jesus's parables. And in short, a parable is a little story that is designed to draw you in and tease you into active thought and to help you to notice and to perceive things that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Very, very powerful. And there's a reason Jesus taught in that manner. And we have a case in point here of, of how well a parable works because David is drawn right into this story that Nathan tells him. And what happens is his, his sort of religious anger begins to bubble up as he sees the, the awful thing that this rich man has done. And David's response is extreme even under the Mosaic law that they lived with. 
And, and, and in this society at the time, the king also acted as a judge. People would have brought uh, cases before him and expected him to dispense with justice. And so David really should be the safeguard of justice for his people. And he vehemently says, who is this man? And right when he is at this moment of dealing out judgment, Nathan utters the words. And I, I mean, I would love to have been in the room, right? I, I think Nathan probably did it quite quietly. He looks at me and he says, you are he. Nathan's story has put David like squarely in the crosshairs here. But notice that this indictment of David doesn't come as the first thing that Nathan says. It comes as the conclusion of his little tale. And I think that tells us something about how God works with us. God doesn't denounce David in such a way that immediately puts his back up and his defenses up. We know that that doesn't work, right? And we think of stories of, of you know, maybe certain uh, Christian denominations that might go and picket funerals and all of this kind of, oh, you know, that stuff, it just doesn't work. It doesn't open dialogue. It doesn't invite discussion. It just puts barriers up with other people. Um, Tim Keller of this sort of passage says it shows that God is not, um, it got, God is always for conviction and conversion over condemnation. And it makes me think of John three seventeen. for God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're so quick to condemn others when we think they have done something wrong. We love, don't we? We love to just deal out our opinion and what we think should happen to these terrible people that have done such and such. We're so quick to condemn. And that is not what God is like, as we can see in this story. A couple of thoughts just on, on this part of the text. Um, this kind of conviction, and I think th these are words, by the way, I mean, basically every word I've said is not a very popular word in our culture. It's not cool to talk about sin, right? Um, and conviction, condemnation, these are difficult words. People don't really like these words, but it's very important that we have a healthy understanding of the difference between conviction and condemnation. Often people think they're the same thing they're not the same thing, and it's important that we, we know that. And who knows that um, when you've done something wrong or you've done something inconsistent or you've done something in that realm, it's often those around you who know you best that point it out to you. Is anyone grateful to have people like that in their life? It's often a spouse um, or a good friend. We recently had a fun instance of this happening with our children where um, Xander, our three-year-old, you know, he didn't want his bath one night and then it gets to bedtime and, you know, we're like, this is delaying tactic. He wants a bath then suddenly five minutes before bedtime. And so my wife says to him, okay, you can have a five-minute bath, hops in, has a five-minute bath, end of story. And then like two weeks later, the same thing happens with Willow, our five-year-old. And she doesn't want her bath at the right time. And then just before bedtime, she says, Mom, I really want a bath now. And Andrea says, no, it's five minutes to bed. It's not time for a bath. And she looked at Andrea and she said, but you said Xander could have a bath, you know, last time when he asked this. So she spotted this like inconsistency. I'm not looking forward to this as my children grow older and more and more shrewd and observant than they already are. Yeah. But often the, 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 we need help spotting the things that we are blind to. And what I want to say to you is be a Nathan for those around you and find yourself some Nathans. Last week, Adam encouraged us to be a Jonathan and to find some Jonathans. Jonathan came along and gave David strength and encouragement when he needed it. But we also need Nathans, right? We need people that are willing to tell it to us straight 
and who we are able to listen to, right? It's not easy to get feedback or, or a, a something like this from someone you don't really know or trust, you know, but you need to have people that you um, allow to speak to you in this way. Think of Hebrews 3, 13. Exhort or confront is another word you could say there. One another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we be that kind of people? And by the way, this doesn't happen electronically. Uh, doing this on Facebook or whatever doesn't... Uh, is Facebook... I don't even know if it's still a thing. I haven't had it in years. But you know that kind of like righteous keyboard warrior thing? Like that's not what we're talking about here. Nathan doesn't harangue. He doesn't beat David over the head. He comes along. He allows the Lord to guide him. And he leads David to a place of realizing himself what he has done. And so how do we do that? By the way that we live our lives and the way we treat others around us, lead others to a place like that. So be a Nathan and find yourself some Nathans. And even more importantly than that, I think this passage also reveals something really crucial about the heart of God towards David and therefore towards you and towards me. A little bit later, um, and again, I'm having to be selective with how much of the, the passage we can, we can read. But a little bit later, it gets to this point where, where David just simply says the words, I have sinned against the Lord. And you know the next thing that comes out of Nathan's mouth? You are forgiven. The Lord has forgiven. The Lord has taken away your sin. David's sin is oh so great in this passage, like hopefully it's, it's had a fresh landing on you today of just how crazy and how out of control David's misdeeds had gone. But what we see here is clear, God's grace is so much greater and bigger than David's iniquity. After this uh, incident, it's, it's, you know, church tradition is held that David composed Psalm 51, a beautiful Psalm of lament over the writer's sin. And interestingly, in that psalm, there are four Hebrew words for the sort of human side of the equation. So sort of sin, iniquity, transgression. There's four different words that kind of cover the waterfront of all of the things that David is admitting to the Lord. But there are 19 words for God's action towards him in his mercy, cleansing him, forgiving him, taking away his sin, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. 19 words in Psalm 51 of God's action towards the person confessing and only four words for the entirety of his sin. I think, again, that's important to, to note. And so David has found himself at the end of this exchange with Nathan firmly in the crosshairs, as we said. But we find out as we read the story that they are the crosshairs of the gospel of grace and of forgiveness. And there's a little, uh, there's another sort of literary thing going on here because in 1 Samuel, in the story of Saul, he also has a moment where he's kind of found out about something and he kind of confesses, repents, but it's not the same and it's not really genuine. And we see David here, all that he has done, it is a genuine contrition, it's a genuine confession that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to excuse it, he doesn't try to defend it, he just says, you know what, I have really messed up. And I think that's important to know. It's holding these two kings up and it's saying like, go the way of David. Like he is the man after God's own heart. And yes, he is not perfect, far from it. But he doesn't keep going down that path. He, he confesses and he repents. It makes me think of 
1 John 1, 9, that beautiful promise, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's sometimes this weird duality that happens um, where we, we kind of, even if we don't say we think this, it's often kind of hidden in, in the way people think that God in the Old Testament is angry and uh, awful and difficult, right? And then the New Testament, it's all chill and Jesus is great. And it's, you know, the, you know that, that sort of duality that happens, it's way more complicated than that. It's definitely not as binary as that because among other reasons, like you consistently see God in the Old Testament forgiving people, you know, in a sense, not keeping his covenant. You know, if, if part of the covenant was the punishments that would come when people had done things wrong, God kind of breaks that sometimes because he forgives them. And we see that with David here. God would have been perfectly justified in not forgiving David, and yet he does. Now, of course, the story is more complicated than I'm able to go into right now. David bears the consequences of his decisions throughout the rest of his life. But in this moment, his genuine repentance leads to God forgiving him, taking his sin away. And we think of one of the oldest kind of, uh, it's kind of this divine self-revelation that happens in Exodus 34. God speaking to Moses says, Yahweh is a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin time and time and time and time again. We see God going out of his way to forgive us, to chase us down with his mercy and his grace. God is not waiting on the sidelines of your life trying to say, I told you so. He's not waiting to beat you over the head with all of the things that you've done wrong. He is willing that you would turn towards him and receive his forgiveness. It says, in, I think in 1 Peter, you know, God desires that all would be saved, that all would come to know him. That is the heart of God. And so often we fall into this place of thinking that he is out to get us and he's out to condemn everyone. God is not out to condemn us. He wants to lavish his grace and his love upon us as he does here with King David. It's always a mistake to concentrate on our sins when the main event is God's action on our sins. I wonder if the, the worship team want to join me up here. Take a moment now if you want to close your eyes or hold out your hands. I realize we've covered a lot in the past uh, minutes. Spirit of God, would you come and speak to our hearts now? We thank you for this story, shocking, profound as it is. And we pray now, Lord, that by your spirit, you would speak to us, reveal things to us. be different parts of what I've talked about that, that resonate with you and I'd love to encourage you just to ask the Lord for, for one of them, it may be something different than the, the ones that I'm about to share but just be attentive to his spirit in this moment the first part may resonate with you and, and 
you become aware as I've been talking of a seed that you have allowed to grow in your life that you want rid of, you want it gone. And perhaps you've even lost the ability to, to know how to win the small battles with that particular seed, whatever it may be. Bring that to the Lord now. Perhaps that story about Nathan and how he led David to a place of conviction is, is making you realize there's someone that you care for, someone that you know who's making bad decisions and you don't know what to do. And the encouragement today is be a Nathan for them. Draw alongside them. Don't beat them over the head with it. Don't harangue them. But allow the Lord to use you to speak to them, to lead them to a place where they can hear his voice more clearly again. Perhaps it's that final part and you struggle with the idea that God is truly for you, that he's not waiting to trap you. And this is a lie that we have to fight over and over again in our lives and in our time as followers of Jesus. We so quickly fall into the idea that God is one of us, right? He's quick to condemn. He's out for revenge. And that is just not the story that we see in scripture, we see him to be gracious and compassionate and forgiving, willing us to turn to him. And so perhaps today you need to, to hear that truth again. He is for you, not against you. He is the father of the prodigal son who gathers up his garment and runs to meet you. So we've got a little bit of time before the service finishes. I think there's a few different ways to respond as you're just reflecting and listening to the Spirit. You may want to pull up Psalm 51 in your Bible or on your phone. Read it through once slowly and then read it again, but pray it this time if you feel led to, to do that. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. I know it can be intimidating to, to come forward or to find someone, but um, even if it's after the service, there's plenty of people that would love to pray with you. And so please don't leave today without being prayed for if you would like that. And finally, if you'd just like to join us to sing a song that we've chosen um, off the back of this message, we can lift our hearts in worship to our gracious Father knowing that when we come before him with honest hearts in confession of what we've done wrong, there is this assurance of his love and his forgiveness over us.